If you would, open your Bibles to the 28th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. The 28th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We began a series last week. At the beginning of the year, we often like to to do a series that kind of refocuses us on our mission, why we exist, if you will. And this particular series, uh, we're going to be going through, we've recently uh, written out our missional priorities in a way that helps all of us in, in, in terms of a, in a format that is, uh, is catchable and communicable. So we're, we're talking about that uh, under the heading of gospel witness. You know, our, our mission statement is building a faithful gospel witness to this generation and the next. What does it mean to be a gospel witness? Well, we, we saw in our study that we began in the fall of the book of Revelation, we'll pick up later, uh, that the church is symbolized by a lampstand. And a lampstand, according to Jesus, is something that's got to be, or a, a light, a, a, a candle, has got to be something that's put on a lampstand. And it represents our witness to the world. If our light goes out, if we are not a city on a hill, then our light has gone out. And we aren't, the reason for our existence has ceased to, to, to matter. We're no longer fulfilling our purpose. So we must be a, a light that shines, a city on a hill, to, so that people can observe the church and in some way have a, an understanding of what we mean when we talk about the gospel because they see it in our lives. And so in the, under that heading of gospel witness, we're going to be walking through in each one of the messages an aspect of our missional priorities. The first, which we did last week, was gospel culture. The second, which we're going to be doing this week, is gospel formation. The third, gospel mercy, then gospel outreach, and gospel unity. And um, so, so while a lot of things could go under these headings, to be sure, uh, what these do is they help us focus and look at what we aren't doing. And to identify things, if something that we want to take on and do, if it doesn't really strengthen these in a significant way, then we have to ask, why are we doing it? And uh, so these are a focus. So today we're going to be looking at gospel formation. And um, if you would, read with me Matthew 28, and we'll read just the uh, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. To obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe and King of our souls, our lives, King of this community, here we have just read your parting words to your people, the commission that you have given us in this world that we are to go and make disciples of all nations. And then you tell us how to do that. And so, Lord, as we think on that, help us to understand how to apply these things in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Experience tells me that if you ask most Christians what the Great Commission is, they would say something about preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth, a smaller number would say something about uh, 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 making disciples, that that's an important part of the Great Commission. Still a significant number, I think. But if you then ask, what are the essential ingredients to disciple-making, the number would divide significantly again 
And finally, of those who list baptizing and teaching as the essential ingredients, if you ask, teaching them what? Those who answered everything Jesus commanded, I think would be less than 10%. Now, I can't prove that. I've not taken such a survey. But I've had a lot of experience having this discussion with people. And based on that experience, at least in the circles I run in, I think that would be the case. Now, supporting that, I think, last year I was at a conference, seminar, whatever you want to call it, and there was a message given that was focused on these verses and specifically on making disciples. That was the aspect of these verses that the sermon theme was based on. And in that message, the preacher said, now we aren't told how to make disciples, I was a bit baffled as we had just read the text, and it seemed to me that it said something to that end. Now, generously, I might assume he meant that we aren't told step by step, and that would be fair. Less generously, and since the rest of the sermon didn't bring up the fact that the big headlines of disciple-making are baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, I might suggest that he just didn't recognize that it was sitting right there in front of him. Now, Dallas Willard gets at it a little more directly. He says, you will find few scholars or leaders in Christian circles who deny that we are supposed to make disciples or apprentices to Jesus and teach them to do all the things that Jesus said. Jesus' instructions on this matter are, after all, starkly clear. We just don't do what he said. We don't seriously attempt it. And apparently, we don't know how to do it. I think that gets to the point. We don't seriously attempt it. I mean, last week I, I, I used illustratively the, the Amish and some of the practices that they have, you know, and, and talked about a variety of them, like, for instance, with not driving a car because... Cars have become a, a status symbol. You know, in other words, we can hire somebody to drive us somewhere. That the car itself is not the problem. But because cars have become a status symbol, and we're not going to drive cars because that would lead us to pride and arrogance and so forth. Now, we might think, well, that's a, a strange cultural thing. And I, I, I agree, it's not necessary biblical cultural thing. But at least they are seriously attempting to follow Christ and to obey His commands. And if we don't like the things that they've chosen to do, we must at least stop and say, but what are we doing? Right? To help form us into the image of Christ. This is why gospel formation must be a priority for us. <coughs> what is gospel formation? In short, and I'll expand later under point two, um, uh, a broader definition, but in short, learning to obey everything Jesus commanded is gospel formation. Learning to obey everything Jesus commanded is gospel formation. And identifying uh, formative practices that work for us as a congregation, practices that will help shape us like clay in the hands of a potter, those are essential to accomplishing that task. They're essential to accomplishing that task. So to be sure, every church, every church has formative practices. The only two questions are, are they intentional? And secondly, 
What are they forming us into? And there's a relationship between the answers to those two questions. The less intentional they are, the less likely they are forming us into Christ-likeness. Not impossible, but I'm just going to suggest the less intentional they are, the less likely they are uh, to form us into Christ-likeness. And the, the more likely they are shaping us, therefore, in the wrong way. Now, we all get shaping. I, mean, I, I think anyone certainly at least 20 years old or older uh, recognizes how much the social media has begun to shape our culture, Right? Uh, the access on a phone to social media, and, and even more specifically, uh, hey, I can not only ha- communicate on social media, and that's shaped how we do conversations in a bad way, but, but we can take pictures of ourselves at every given moment, everything we do, and put it on uh, the, the, you know, the internet, and all our friends see it, and suddenly there's this kind of this forming of our nature that I want to make sure I'm seen. I want others to, to, to observe. I want, and, and it's a whole culture. You can make money doing it. It's actually kind of crazy how much money people make doing it. So the smallest things that we don't often even think about shape us in serious ways. I mean, the Amish were concerned about having too many mirrors in the house because of what that could do. But, I mean, the, the social media has gone to a whole new level. Forget the mirrors. As evangelicals, and that's what we are, we've historically been less intentional about congregational or gathered formative practices, but somewhat intentional about private formative practices, such as Bible reading, study, or prayer. But given the individualism of our culture, proper formation into Christ's likeness will require a focus on congregational practices as well. We'll explore this theme under three headings. And and so the first is the need for formation. Secondly, defining formation. And finally, how formation works. And then in the conclusion, we're just going to look at what does this look like? What does this look like? So first, the need for formation. Authenticity is all the rage. Being true to yourself. It's become essentially doing what you want based on how you feel, which is exactly what you don't want the insane person doing. Another way we say this is to say that we need to believe in ourselves. You ever heard that? If not every day, right? I mean, it's it's everywhere. G.K. Chesterton was walking with a successful businessman on the streets of London when the businessman said regarding a particular person, That man will get on. He believes in himself. Chesterton paused and thought about it, and then he had an aha moment. And he says, Shall I tell you where the men are who believe most in themselves? For I can tell you. I know of men who believe in themselves more colossally than Napoleon or Caesar. I know where flames, where flames the fixed star of certainty and success. I can guide you to the thrones of the supermen. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. The, the man replied that there were many good uh, men who believed in themselves and who were not in lunatic asylums. 
Chesterton agreed and went on to describe the many failures in this world who believed in themselves like actors who can't act or debtors who can't pay. They all believed in themselves. Nothing has proven this more than American Idol. There are plenty of people who need to focus on something other than singing that think they can sing. They believe in themselves. Fiercely at times. What baseball coach wants a bunch of kids showing up the first day of practice believing in themselves? Is it not better to understand their need to learn from someone else for training, to be shaped? Christianity recognizes that in a substantial way, my wants, my feelings, your wants, your feelings, as real as they seem, are often quite false. And that Jesus Christ shows us most clearly what an authentic human is and what we should desire above all. We need gospel formation to become authentic human beings. It does not come natural to us. And that gets us to our second heading, which is defining formation. Colossians 1, <clears throat> Paul writing to the Colossians defines the very purpose of his ministry. Beginning in verse 17, or I'm sorry, verse 27. There's a typo in your notes, I just realized. Verse 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present Everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. In the introduction, I gave a brief description of formation. Learning how to obey everything Jesus commanded. That is gospel formation. Now, let's fill that out just a little bit here. There are two ways that I will speak about formation. And uh, often in the same paragraph, to be honest with you, I, I'll go back and forth between them. So I want you to be aware that there's two ways that I'm speaking about it. First, formation as the end goal for which we are striving. It's the purpose for which we labor, as Paul put it here. It could be described in myriad ways, at least biblically so. But in short, it's being formed into the image of Christ. Paul here calls it Christ in you. And fully mature in Christ. Gospel formation is the goal of ministry. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay. So that's the first way I'll speak about it. When we say that's a missional priority, that's the one we mean. But by saying that's what we mean, then it, it asks the question, then what practices are we putting into place to help us get there? And so that leads to the second way we use it. Is, it's speaking about formative practices that can help us toward that end. In this case, formation is the process rather than the goal. It's the process rather than the goal. So when we say we have a missional priority for formation, or sometimes you'll hear it called spiritual formation, we're speaking of the end goal, but then we will speak about practices, formative practices or formation that will help us achieve that goal. Obeying the commands of Jesus helps shape or form us into His image. 
Obeying the commands of Jesus helps shape us or form us into His image. That, 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 that kind of formation is an essential of disciple-making. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, Jesus assumed that obedience would not naturally occur. It must be taught, hence, teaching them to obey. It wasn't going to happen automatically. Um, maybe it's better to say that it must be learned rather than taught. Uh, both are true, to be sure. But it must be learned, since as disciples, mephetes, a mephetes is a learner, or a mephete is a learner. Okay, so, so when, when we think of uh, a disciple, that's somebody who's a learner. And learning is different than just being taught. We'll, we'll talk about that as we walk through this today. Um, it, the relationship is more like an apprentice or training than it is like a classroom. In a classroom, we learn knowledge. In training, we have, uh, or apprenticeship, we, we, it's about putting it into practice. That's of the essence, okay? So don't misunderstand me. Classroom teaching can be an essential part of our discipleship, but it's never complete until training occurs. You could never make a team of baseball players that were any good in a classroom, right? You'd have to get them on a field, get them catching balls, throwing balls, swinging a bat, and so forth. You can get them in a classroom, and that could be valuable to teach them the rules. They'll probably be better players if they understand the game well, to be sure. But they can understand the game perfectly and be horrible players. Okay? And, and in the church, we've had such a focus on learning or education that at times I wonder if we understand what a Christian is very well. We're just horrible at it. Because we've never put it into practice. And so, for us, it's important that we don't stop here, but that we go here. And I, I, I think you understand, nobody's going to ever accuse me of being anti-intellectual. Okay, that I'm somehow not interested in studying the Bible. I'm not interested in reading what others have said. I'm, I mean, that's not an accusation, so don't hear me wrong here. But I think we can get so focused there at times that we forget that, oh, we've got to get out on the field and start throwing balls around, hitting them, and, you know, seeing what's going to happen. Figure out who has the ability and develop that ability, and so on and so forth. Formation requires patience. It's like human maturation. I mean, even in the illustration of baseball, I, I remember when my son was in, you know, he was seven, and he was in the farm team or little league or whatever they called it at the time around here, and, 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 and watching that group of kids trying to learn how to play baseball, well, it, it's going to take a good ten years when they're in high school, when they finally get to where they, they, they really get to where they're playing the game well. I mean, it just it's formative. It takes time and going over it and over it. All of human maturation is that way. Humans, compared to other animals, take much longer to reach adulthood uh, or physical maturity. I mean, consider what humans need to learn in order to function as adults. I'm sure glad that kids aren't 21 in three years, right? I mean, that would, like, wow, they haven't learned enough to be 21. I mean, the damage that would occur, right? They do enough as it is. I mean, you know, a lot of us are like, could you slow this down a little more? They need a lot more to learn, right? So, <clears throat> the capacity for good in, in a human is rivaled by the capacity for evil. And, and it's harmful to the process when children get ahead of it. So, 
For instance, it could be a five-year-old who thinks that they can just walk down the street by themselves and go to the park without telling anyone, or a 13-year-old who thinks playing video games until 2 in the morning every night is okay, or the 15-year-old who thinks they're ready to have sex just because they feel like it. We have language to learn, limits to learn, emotions to control, and much, much more. Formation is much the same. It's a long, slow process that, like growing up, often happens in ways we don't understand or even know are occurring or happening. Formation involves the body. Formation involves the body. I, I ran across a book earlier <clears throat> this week in my you know, the little thing pops up in my Kindle and says, based on your reading, my, in my Kindle app, we recommend, and so then they recommend books that are somehow akin to what you've been reading. And the book that popped up uh, that intrigued me is The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Uh, um, it grew out of decades of study in early church history and seeks to answer the question, why did the church during its first three centuries grow so rapidly against all odds. And everything was against them growing. There was no reason they should have grown. Why did they grow against all odds? Well, needless to say, it only took me about a day and a half before I gave in and bought the book (laughs) and and began looking at it. And and it's interesting. By examining the history of the early church, what you will not find, not find, is an organized mission program or evangelization strategies or even instructions on evangelizing. In fact, the most complete survey or summary of of training precepts that was put together for new Christians written at that time and it's 120 precepts for young Christians that they need to learn, there is not one that instructed believers to share the gospel with unbelievers. Yet the church grew wildly. I'm not suggesting that we should not share the gospel with unbelievers. Please hear me. But I am suggesting that we could do that and miss something vastly more important. The author identifies four reasons, though he acknowledges that the fourth is more of a metaphor for the first three. So I'll mention the first three. Patience. Habitus, which you might know. We might more readily just say habits. Um, which it, it, habitus is reflexive bodily behavior, learning reflexive bodily behavior. We'll talk about that some more. And thirdly, baptismal preparation and worship. Baptismal preparation and worship. And by the way, if you see the earliest document we have from about 70 A.D. Uh, is a baptismal preparation document teaching them the teaching of the apostles. Its primary focus is on obeying the teachings of Jesus. Go figure. They believed in formation. Okay. In that book, quote, the sources rarely indicate that the early Christians grew in number because they won arguments. Instead, they grew because their habitual behavior, rooted in patience, was distinctive and intriguing. The home we were raised in, how we were parented, that helps shape or form us into who we are, right? I mean, sometimes we hate that fact, but it is a fact. I mean, we might love that fact, but it's still a fact either way. Whether we were rich or poor, have power or the lack thereof, that also forms us or shapes us into who we become. 
However, a French sociologist, Pierre Bourdieu, I think that's how you would say that, though I never understood French pronunciation. Um, Without denying those, he points to a third um, significant influence on human formation, what he calls habitus, things that we do habitually. Things that we do habitually. Quote, again, from the book, Bordeaux Bordeaux contends that the knowledge uh, that truly forms us is more profoundly a part of us than our intellectual knowledge. It is corporeal knowledge or bodily knowledge, a system of dispositions that we carry in our bodies. You see, we don't just know things with our minds. We know them in our bodies through our habits. Simple way to understand this, for Christmas, Donna and I, we, we got a, a, a new bed. Now, we, we stopped and thought about it after we'd gotten the new bed, that it was almost exactly 30 years ago that we got the first one. Now, I'm not talking about the mattress. We've had several mattresses. To be clear, when we talk about a bed, that's the part that holds the mattress. You know, it's got a headboard and a footboard and the sides and that kind of thing. And so we got a new one. Uh, I've been loath to get rid of the old one because it was a gift from my grandfather. He gave us the money, and we decided that's what we were going to do with it one year for Christmas. And <clears throat> so 30 years ago, and, and, and it's really cool. But we got this new one, which is much more fitting for our bedroom in the style of our home and all that. And I said, Uncle, and yes, we did it. So we bought each other this, this bed. And, and because it's slightly less bulky than the other, it now can fit where... Uh, in a different position in the room than the other one. Well, I mean, the other one could have fit there. It would have been a little bit weird trying to squeeze in this out of the other. But So we shifted the bed around towards the other way. And so now, instead of me sleeping on the right side of the bed as you lay on it, I'm sleeping on the left side of the bed after 27, actually more than that, most of 30 years, uh, I've been on that side of the bed. And what happened, because I was so used to just you know, we have a queen bed. We don't want a bed where we can actually sleep all night and not bump into each other. It's just not good for a marriage, you know. <laughs> How do you stay married 42 years? Don't get a king-size bed unless you're a lot bigger than me. Um, <clears throat> so we've got a queen-size bed, and, and so I just kind of learned to hang my arm off the right side of the bed where there's air and nothing to hit versus the left side of the bed. Well, the funny thing is, is you can switch sides of the bed, but your muscle memory comes into play. Your body memory comes into play. So throughout the night, I kept knocking her in the head. (laughs) Fortunately, it wasn't forceful, to be clear. No need to call the police, but it took me a while, a good week, to learn not to, to put my arm on that side. And I'm sure it'll happen again, just because the things you learn bodily are learned behaviors. They're truly learned behaviors. I never, you know, consciously thought about it, but I just did it. Now, when you first learn to drive, you drive against nature. Over time, it trains your nature until you do it by nature. Now, you don't want the new driver to believe in themselves. No, you want them to read the book. You want them to understand the rules. Believing in themselves is a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, but the train driver... You do kind of want them to believe in themselves. It's not really themselves they're believing in. It's the training. It's the memory that they've taught themselves through perpetual use that they're believing in. And you want them to do that because otherwise they'd be always focusing on what do I do next. And that's not safe driving. Which is why a new driver is not as safe as 
one that's been around a while. So um, it, it, there's, there's a process there. The early church incorporated practices that would train them bodily so that the church began to believe bodily in practice the truths of the faith. They would practice the truths of the faith. So to summarize, formation is the goal, which is Christ being formed in us or maturity in Christ. Formative practices are necessary for teaching disciples to obey everything Jesus commanded. Formation requires learning both intellectually and bodily in incorporating the practices through which we learn innately the truths of the gospel. So how do we get there? And this is that third heading, final heading, how formation works. John 1, in verse 35, beginning there we read, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God! When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, you'll see. Formation trains our desires as much as our thinking. Formation trains our desires as much as our thinking. John had been telling his disciples that Jesus was the greater one to come. I mean, John has nothing in comparison to this greater one. So, then, a couple of days later, Jesus comes by and <clears throat> says, Behold the Lamb of God. So, they think, well, we're going to follow Him. So, they take off following Him. Maybe it was the greatness of Jesus that they were seeking. They wanted to be great, and if you hang out with great people, you'll be great. We don't know exactly what it is they want because they never answer that question. But Jesus asks it, and his question is insightful. What do you want? Or more literally, what are you seeking? We might say, what are you after? It's an important question. And it's one that John continues to hammer on in his gospel, just, a, uh, just off the top of my head, kind of a, a, a quick sampling. You get to chapter 5, pull of Bethesda, Bethesda, and what do you have? You have, oh, do you want to get healed? And then you get, in chapter 6, you've got people who followed Jesus across the lake because they had been fed bread. And he says, you're, you're seeking me for the wrong reasons. You want more bread. And you get to the very end of the gospel, and three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? What do you love? What is it you desire most? Where are your affections? What are your desires? <laughs> These two disciples, like a lot of us, must not have known what they wanted because they didn't answer. And said they responded with the question, where are you staying? Apparently they needed to know what the accommodations were if they're going to follow Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus did for them what he does for us. You come, and you will see. You come, present. Right now, you come. Eh, one day you'll see. When I first started following Jesus, what I wanted out of the relationship was surely wrong. Before long, I thought Jesus was the means to a new Corvette and a life with no difficulties or suffering or that kind of thing. And, and, and of course, great acclaim would come with it. Jesus answered me, come and you'll see. And boy, have I. 
I've seen enough to realize that I had it all wrong. The more I follow, the more I see things that had I known up front, I probably wouldn't have signed up for it. So I'm grateful I didn't know. Now I actually want the things that I couldn't have wanted before. My desires have changed. Sure, I, I would have said that I wanted to be conformed into the image of Christ, but I didn't know at that point what that even meant. Now that I know what it means, I cautiously want it. Formation is as much about transforming our desires as our thinking. Until we've changed our desires, the way we live our lives won't change. In in sales, there's a, a saying. People buy emotionally and justify it logically. They buy emotionally, they justify it logically. In other words, no matter how much information you give them, if they don't want it, they aren't buying it. But if they want it, and if you can help them want it, which is the job of a salesperson, then they'll be happy for all that information because they're going to use it to justify their decision. Because we always want to justify our our decisions. But you can't reason your way into a cell, and you can't reason your way into Christ-likeness. You have to want it. And you have to be willing to pursue what it takes. People change emotionally, in a sense, and justify it logically. In other words, change comes at the level of our desires, not mere knowledge. No one's desires are changed overnight or simply because of a meeting. It takes training. Paul writes to Timothy, "...have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself." Gumnadzo. That's where we get our word gymnasium. Gumnadzo. Train yourself to be godly. For physical training, there's that word again, is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Godliness, Christ-likeness, requires training. Requires training. Like, so, so, it's past Easter. It's about... I don't know, sometime in the evening I get a text from Mike Miller. Where's Mike? I saw Mike a minute ago, right there. <clears throat> and um, Mike, Mike asks, hey, I get together with a group of guys tomorrow morning at 5.30 at Northwest Park. You want to join us for a workout? My first thought was, um, Gehenna, no. <laughs> that, that's just a theological way of saying something I'm not allowed to say in the pulpit. <laughs> Um, I mean, why would anyone want to do that? <laughs> really, it's like, are you serious? There are people that do this? But, but the, the reality is, as I sat there before I responded, and, 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 and I had to ask myself, do I have that worked out? Is my, is my workout routine all set? I mean, am I good to go? Is my one or two bike rides that I get in a week really sufficient for my physical health? And the clear answer is No. So I needed some form of accountability, right, to somebody to do that. So I said, timidly, yes, I'll be there. I'll be there. Um, So that began, um, well, for the next two months, I would show up at these workouts and pretty much feel like puking by the time we got halfway through the workout. 
And, and, you know, after two months, it got to where it was like, okay, that's not so bad. I didn't feel like puking today. And then it gets to where you actually enjoy it. But, of course, then if you take time off, like you've got to have sabbatical or something, you know, you have to work yourself back into it because you don't want it anymore. Your desires can be formed. Anyone who's done exercise running, I mean, who likes running? But if you run enough, you begin to like it. It's kind of weird, I realize, but people do it, okay? You can change your desires by the habits of your body. Change at the subconscious level requires repetition. Changing our Godward orientation requires learning new habits by bodily practices that reorient our whole person. A simple example. The Lord's Prayer is probably the most well-known and widely used formative practice. I mean, even in a, uh, a crowd of low-church evangelicals like us, if somebody leads off in praying the Lord's Prayer, everybody can join in. And we might have slightly different renditions, but it doesn't matter. We know how to make it work, right? After a lifetime of praying the Lord's Prayer, I've learned that the purpose of praying the Lord's Prayer is to reorient our desires. It's not that that's the word formula that gets God to answer. No. But those are words that teach us what we should desire and seek in prayer. How ideal, impossible, but ideal it would have been if those disciples had turned to Jesus when he said, what do you want? And they had said, we want your name to be hallowed. We want your kingdom come. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want our daily bread and no more. We want to be forgiven even as we forgive. We want you to keep us from temptation and, and to deliver us from evil. Amen. <laughs> of course, impossible, but how ideal, right? Because that's what we need to want. The modern concern, even in the church, is that we do only what we want to do, lest we somehow be false. As if desire must precede behavior. The problem is, is that life doesn't work that way. More often than not, behavior precedes desire. There are things in life which we must do repetitively until it creates a desire in us to do them. In 1986, I began teaching a small group. I think it was five um, uh, middle school students. Uh, and, and math was the toughest subject for them. Every one of them had been a C or below student in math their whole experience in school. And, and so, <clears throat> I, me, having loved math, I, I, I made a decision that that wasn't going to be the case. So we began doing drills various, uh, of various math skills, speed drills, and, and a variety of things as a class in a group every day. And before long, they actually became A students in math and began to love it. In fact, it was really their favorite subject. How did it happen? By involving their bodies much more than simply writing out answers on a page, mathematics began forming itself into what they really knew. Do you think, if I'd have just sent them home and said, you just need to study math harder, that they would have gained any excellence in math. No, and, and even if they had studied harder, I don't think they would have. They had to get their bodies involved in it. They had to get their, their minds engaged in the competition with others, the, the, the whole thing going on, and they fell in love with it. 
Their gathered experience, seeing each other doing it, was transformative. And it's the same with church. There are individual practices we can put into place, but it is vital that we develop congregational formative practices if we're going to change at the deepest levels. So in closing, I just want to answer this question. What does this look like in our gathered community? Now, there's a lot more that could be said. I can't say everything in in a sermon here. It needed another hour, but there's some big ones here we can look at. Simple practices, habits, which can help form us at the bodily level. And the first, and, and the rest of these that I'm going to talk about here are a part of this first one, but it's gathering for worship. It's gathering for worship. As simple as that sounds, it's not a habit for most. It's, it's a good idea, to be sure, but most don't see it as a formative thing. They don't see the formative nature of week in and week out what we do is worship. When Donna and I got married... We just made a decision. What we do on Sunday is worship God with His people. It's what we do. We've never wavered from that. And it has been formative in our lives. For some of you, that's the case. Now, truth be told, our, our whole worship service is, and, and this is somewhat new for us. We've been forming this over a period of time, but we're going to continue to work at this. But we want the whole service to tell a story. Not that you have to consciously think about the story, though it is helpful at times to consciously think about the story. But as we walk through the story, it's important because it forms a new story in us. The world's telling a story every day, constantly. Turn on the TV, walk down, see a billboard. The world is telling a story. The gospel story is a different story. And when we gather, we want our very practice of worship to tell that story that God wants us to understand. So... If, if you're familiar with Hebrews 12, it talks about how when we gather to worship as His people, we gather at the heavenly Mount Zion. And, and so you get that picture of um, you know, Mount Zion um, where you know, they came to gather and worship God. And you also, with the descriptors in there, it's a contrast with Sinai. But Sinai is a picture of God coming to give His word. And of course, they had fear. We come having been forgiven. But the call to worship at the beginning of our service, it's not merely an opening prayer. It's a biblical call from God to His people to worship. We begin this way because it reminds us that we worship because God has called us to Himself. So, we, it's, it's, you know, there's fine to have an opening prayer, but that doesn't tell a story. Our call to worship is God calling His people to Himself out of the world, which is how we got saved. Then we have singing together. It's not a concert. It's participatory. We are to see one another singing and hear one another singing the truth. As we've visited churches over the years, been out of town or different things, we've been in contexts where as soon as they're going to start the service, the lights go dim. All you see is the people on the platform, yourself. The, The sound is at such a level you hear nobody around you singing anything. It's a concert environment. And someone say, well, this is what people are used to. Fine, but it's not the church. We're not here for a concert where you observe and watch. We're here as participants in God's congregation whom He's called to worship Him. And a vital part of that is to see one another and hear one another as we worship. God is not the only beneficiary of our worship. It encourages others around you as you sing the glories of the gospel. And it might help you to know, some of you especially, like me, that musically speaking... Even though your voice may not sound great as a solo or even a quartet, 
when you have an entire choir of people singing, all of our voices actually contribute to making it better. We are singing with the heavenly hosts, according to Hebrews 12. Wait, lifting our voices in prayer together. This not only teaches us how to pray, that's formative. It gets us praying together for a common desire. It develops unity of mind, as we see in Philippians 2. Sometimes we'll use a call and response. And when we do those, we are largely using the Psalms, the prayer book of Scripture, as it was intended to be used. We hear and we respond, which trains us when we hear God's word to want to respond. It forms us to say, I hear something, now how do I respond? I hear, I respond, I hear, I respond. Even in the opening declarations of worship in Revelation 1, as we saw in the fall, there are written, they are written as a call and response. The first call ending with yes, and the second one ending with yes, amen. They didn't have overhead projectors where they could put whole paragraphs up there, okay? Simple. Preaching. Just as the people of God gathered around the mountain and they heard God's instruction, we come and as imperfect as it is, we, we gather and say, Lord, speak. And by faith, we trust that he'll use what's given. I, you know, it's never going to be a, a perfect scenario. And it's to be participatory. It wasn't until the 13th century when they first added chairs to the worship service. 1,200 years. No chairs. Why? And what was their concern? They had concerns about putting benches or seating into a church building. Um, Simply that they didn't want the congregation to passively engage rather than participatorily engage. They, They wanted them to be participants. And standing reminds us that we're participating in something. Paul writes, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. He isn't talking about some private utterance we make, but about how how as a congregation we speak responsively to God's word proclaimed. So in preaching and in worship, we are to engage our bodies in, in response. The Lord's Supper, I mean, that's... That's the most significant of all these. When we gather together, we're to do this, and we're, as you know, we're working toward doing this weekly. We're hoping in February we're ready to, to do that. If you'd like to serve on a team that helps make that happen, we would love you to let Ryan know. Uh, Reggie, let Reggie know. Okay. So that's good. And if you can't find Reggie, find Ryan. Um, <clears throat> but the Lord's Supper is an actual practice wherein we embody the gospel. We, we, we take, Christ died for me, that's my sustenance, and we physically act it out through that. It's formative. And then finally, there's a benediction. Just as the Lord gathers us from the world and calls us to worship, He then sends us out by blessing us to take the grace we've received and now go invest it in the world where we live. Go back to the fields of harvest from which I called you to worship And now go with the grace I've given you into that and invest that in your vocation, in your neighborhood, in your communities, and much, much more. There's a story. This is why we do a call to worship, do a benediction, gather to hear God's word, and so on. Community groups can also be a formative practice and and should be. Eating together is 
one of the things that many of the groups do from time to time. And, and eating together builds our identity as a family. It's what families do. They eat at this common table. Uh, of course, the Lord's table does that as well in our, our larger gathering. Bearing one another's burdens by helping those who are sick and a variety of different needs that people have, it teaches us that we are not our own. It forms us in that way. See, formation isn't the result of a six-week class. It requires patience. It happens over a long maturation process. It's like the picture created by the title of that book, Patient Ferment. Fermentation. You know, you, you put something in it and or yeast in dough, and you then cover it up, you hide it, you stick it away, and while you're not even paying attention, things begin to change. And that's what formation does for us. Just patient, long haul, engaging our body in the story of the gospel in so many different ways, as it teaches us that story. We learn it in a different way. It's also going to require some experimentation on the part of, our, uh, of us as leaders that We're going to try practices, and we'll find that one doesn't work. That one's not helpful. This one is. We're not locked into, you know, practices that, say, in the 13th century were vital, but they don't really communicate today. So we're we're always going to be seeking ways to keep it fresh and engaging for us in our time. Um, But how we do what we do matters because whatever we're doing is formative in one direction or the other. And the goal is a... People, for God's very purpose, obeying the commands of their king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, teach us the importance of being formed into Christ's image, of obeying the commands of Jesus, and help us to put into practice things that will help us learn bodily in a sense, with our muscle memory, the truth of the gospel, as well as intellectually in the things we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand.